This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is a crowd podcast. It was May the 14th, so for IT people in Ireland, it's a, a day that'll go down in infamy. So that morning, I was in the house and I got a phone call at about quarter past seven, I think, in the morning. And there was no niceties on the phone. It was literally, Geraldine, do not turn on your computer. Do you have the computer turned on? Do not link into your hospital email. Do not go near anything computerized in the hospital. Then about five minutes later, I got a phone call from my cousin, Adele, who was pregnant herself and she was attending the Rotunda Hospital. And then she had heard on the radio, all non-emergencies would not be able to attend the hospital on that day. First port of call is to get dressed, uh, get ready, get in the car and, and, and get in there. So I drove into work. You're sitting in the car, it's a 20 minute drive. Uh, you're on a, a motorway with no other cars, but your mind is racing. Every door you went to in the hospital. So the main door, um, and it's one of those big old Georgian doors, was a poster stuck on it. Do not turn on any computers. Do not access the internet in the hospital. The heading was cyber attack. When I was about nine years old, my parents broke the news to me that we were moving to Moscow, USSR. My dad was in the Air Force and we were living in the actual U.S. Embassy, smack dab in the middle of Moscow. It was the early 70s and things were very austere at that time. Not a lot of cars on the road, no colors, not even in the clothes. There weren't any advertisements, no billboards. And so to nine-year-old, 10-year-old me, it was just a very strange landscape. But one thing I do remember is that the Russians were really curious about me as an American. And I would routinely get kind of snagged off the streets and brought to their homes like some kind of prize fish, which made the two and a half years that I lived there so different to anything I'd ever experienced before or since. Now, remember, in the 70s and 80s, Russia wasn't technically Russia. It was the Soviet Union. And the Cold War ran deep through the veins of the Northern Hemisphere, linking Moscow, Berlin, and Washington, D.C. in mutual fear and hypercharged tension. But by 1989, the wall that cut Berlin in two crumbled. And soon after, so did the Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall. Things looked good, bright. The Cold War is over. The days of satellite states and spheres of influence are behind us. But that doesn't seem to have happened. Tragically, as times passed, 
The country that I loved as a kid has become more different to us, more distant, and more dastardly. The pressure is growing on the International Olympic Committee to deal with Russia's anti-gay stance. The UN is investigating reports of sexual violence by Russian forces. And with that, it looks like we're on the edge of a new kind of Cold War. Only this one's a lot hotter, and it's taking place on a different plane entirely. The Internet. The Kremlin is denying it has plans to conduct cyber attacks against the U.S. in response to our Responsible countries need to take action against criminals who conduct ransomware activities on their territory. Ransomware. When hackers break into your computer, encrypt your data, and demand enormous ransoms for their return. If you don't pay, they'll release your secrets to the world. And these attacks are on the rise. Kindergartens, oil pipelines, the NHS, universities, transport providers, U.S. hospitals, supermarkets. Nobody's safe. The moment I got that message, yeah, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are, are starting to come true. And these ransomware attacks, they've got something in common. They all stem either from countries that cozy up to Russia or from Russia itself. Well, it certainly poses a national security threat, an economic prosperity threat, and a public health and safety threat. That's Michael Daniel. He used to work with President Obama. You'll hear a lot more from him later. I want to know what's going on. Why is this cyber war hotting up? Who's behind these attacks and why? It's definitive. We can call it. The post-Cold War era is over. It's not going to be easy. We got a lot of no's when making this series. The victims don't want to talk. When you have been encrypted, even if it just started and you've got your team on it, you call a group like mine and we jump in there, it is already too late. You're in a world of hurt. But I'm going to be digging right into the heart of these gangs with their ridiculous Lord of the Rings names like Wizard Spider, Our Evil, Dark Side. And I'm going to be meeting victims, cybersecurity experts, and hackers to figure out what is going on. I'm Katie Puckrick, and this is Season 3 of .com, The Hacking. Episode 1, Paper. So I'm quite lucky. Um, I, I, well, lucky? God, I probably shouldn't say that. I'm not married and I don't have children. <laughs> this is Geraldine Gannon, Jer for short. She lives near Dublin, which, if you don't know, is on the eastern coast of Ireland, about 60 miles south of the northern Irish border. If you stand and look out over the docks and the sea beyond, you'll spot miniature ships crawling across the horizon like ants, linking Dublin with Wales, England, and France. But if you turn your back to the sea and walk inland, tracing the bank of the River Liffey with your feet, after about an hour, you'll get to an old stone bridge. It's called the O'Connell Bridge. It's busy. Pedestrians, trams, cars, buses. Take a sharp right up O'Connell Street, walk another five minutes or so, and you're there. It rises up in front of you, a grand stone building with huge Georgian windows, looking like something out of a Jane Austen novel. This is the Rotunda, slap bang in the city center, zip code Dublin 1. Dating back to the 1700s, it's the oldest maternity hospital in the world. And this is where Geraldine works. 
it's quite a small hospital. Like we deliver over 10,000 babies a year, um, which is a lot. It's one of the most in the country. But there's a great sense of family. Everybody that works there knows each other. And, you know, when people say to us, it's the oldest maternity hospital, there is a bit of pride involved in that. Like we are very proud of that. Babies, beeping, shouts, beeping. There are about 30 births a day at the Rotunda. That's 30 new lives. 30 machines linked up to 30 women monitoring 60 hearts. Beep, beep, beep. It's a lot, but Geraldine's got her head screwed on. She's been the director of midwifery and nursing here for a while, and she knows her stuff. Plus, she's got the screens. This computer tells her a blood test came back fine. And that jagged line reassures her the baby's heartbeat is strong. Those type of obstetric or midwifery emergencies, we can deal with them. They're fine. But when the cyber attack happened, that was completely outside of our comfort zone. To have all these systems at our fingertips for all these years and for them to be suddenly, without any warning, just been taken away from us. That was extremely, extremely stressful. It's May the 14th, 2021. Thursday night becomes Friday morning. It's been an extra busy week at the Rotunda because they've started rolling out their COVID vaccination program for the soon-to-be moms. Geraldine's at home, asleep. She's not on duty tonight. That's someone else, a nurse. It's past midnight, and the nurse is checking the wards. Everything seems a-okay. Nothing to see here. Some babies gurgling, mom sleeping, the constant gentle beep of the monitors. The nurse turns into her office and sits down. She leans forward and taps the on button on her computer. Enter Cahill. And around 1 a.m., 1.10 a.m., I, I got a phone call from the hospital. Cahill Keegan, IT manager at the Rotunda. She informed me that she was having trouble accessing network shares, accessing email, and I, I kind of made my way downstairs, pulled out my laptop, tried my email. Yes, I could get my email, but was wondering why she couldn't get hers. Yes, I could browse to network shares, uh, tried some other different servers. No, I couldn't browse to them. So. I suppose there were nuggets of information that were pointing to something wrong, but it wasn't uh, across the board. And then Cal notices something odd. There was a high level of network traffic coming from a particular building in the hospital that would be vacant at, at this time of the night. He's on the phone to one of the nurses when it appears. Kind of that fateful moment when she walked over to the computer screen and said, yeah, there's a, a notepad message up on the screen that's saying your computer has been encrypted. Please contact at this address and provide this information to negotiate a, a ransom to decrypt your, your machine. So my heart, I suppose, dropped when I heard that message and I knew, I suppose, our, our greatest fears that we ever have are, are starting to come true. Cahill had watched in horror a few years before as the WannaCry ransomware took down the UK's National Health Service, costing the NHS £92 million. 
And more tangible than that, Apple had been the target of a $50 million ransomware attack just a few weeks back. And the Colonial Pipeline had also fallen prey seven days earlier, causing major oil shortages throughout the southeastern states of the U.S., So Cahill knew all about ransomware attacks like these, the encrypted data, the threat that your company's secrets will be released for all the world to see if you don't pay, the unfathomable sums involved. But he never thought they'd come for him. Immediately, you believe and and feel that your first port of call is to get dressed, trying to get into your bedroom without waking your wife up and finding your clothes on the ground and dragging them all outside and and getting dressed and just saying, uh, yep, I'm I'm heading in. I don't know when I'm going to be back. You're sitting in the car. It's a 20-minute drive. Uh, You're on a, a motorway with no other cars, but your mind is racing, trying to go, well, what are the first steps? How could this thing be propagating? What do we need to shut down? What do we need to instigate? Who do we need to talk to? First priority, get everyone to turn off their computers. That way the malware can't spread, like a mosquito buzzing from person to person. But he's got to move fast. Things moved very, very quickly. You will have uh, patients arriving at 7 a.m. in the morning because they've been scheduled for elective C-sections. We're not going to have a computer system. How are we going to address this chronic amount of people turning up at hospital for appointments? The pressure's on. The HSE says it's working to contain a very sophisticated, human-operated ransomware By now, they've discovered the hackers haven't just gotten into the rotunda. They've hacked into the whole of the HSE, which is Ireland's state healthcare system, like the NHS in the UK. There is no equivalent in the US, sadly, but think of it like this. The HSE is the HQ, and the rotunda is a branch or unless they have an emergency or a concern about their baby, they probably shouldn't come to the hospital. Ireland's healthcare system is down, and the price for its return? $20 million. This isn't just an attack on a hospital. They've waged war on an entire nation. It's surreal when when you see members of the armed forces in combat fatigues standing at the reception of a maternity hospital to collect computers for for evidence and forensic analysis you're getting phone calls from from left right and center it, it's yeah it's surreal by this time around 7 a.m Geraldine's driven into work there's a queue forming at reception emergency patients women who've come to get their covid vaccines and some who haven't turned on the radio that morning and heard the announcement to stay away panic it was just so many things going on at the same time. But one of the things we realised quite early that morning was that all the babies that had been born during the night, we had no way of registering them. So we had no way of giving them their personal identification number. So if we needed to get a blood transfusion for that baby or if we needed to get medication for that baby, the baby needed to have an identifier. See, the Rotunda used to do things old school. Way back when, they didn't have any computers, obviously. Paper only. Computers obviously trickled in over time, but in 2018, they went full-on digital. 
we don't have access to any maternity chart in the hospital. We don't have access to any lab details in the hospital. So when they broke it down, I was like, oh my God. And you found yourself saying silly things like, oh, I'll just um, ring somebody and they can bring something, you know, something silly, like I'll get someone to get this for me. And they were like, oh, you ca we can't contact them. We've no way of contacting them. It was just those things that you just take for granted every day. What the heck are they going to do? I just remember at one of our initial meetings that morning, somebody said in the meeting room, Cahal, this is your COVID. This hospital has been here for 250 years, long before computers and, and records. And that's very much the, the ethos of, of everyone that was there. It's just put your shoulder to the wheel and, and keep going. Hello, it's Tom here, part of the .com team. Eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh, never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I'm a flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon and it was delicious. If you want more than meals, there's over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. And if you're looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini and asparagus. Customise your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash thehacking50 and use code thehacking50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code thehacking50 at factormeals.com slash thehacking50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. You're listening to .com The Hacking. Welcome back. For ransomware, what we truly see is they really want to go for uh, the most impact, but specifically with focus on psychological pressures. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure, 110%. Meet Ryan. Ryan's an ex, well, you know what? I am gonna let him introduce himself. So I'm Ryan Chapman, and I work with ransomware on just about a daily basis and teaching people how to thwart the threat or at least deal with it should they have to is one of my passions. Ryan's the ransomware guy. He lives in Arizona and works for a cybersecurity company called SANS. And I'm chit-chatting with him one afternoon in May so he can give me the lowdown on ransomware for dummies. 
So ransomware, many people think that ransomware, the term ransomware refers to essentially a piece of malware that runs on a system and bad stuff happens. That is not at all what ransomware is. No, 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 no. Rather, it is a campaign of humans who gain access to an environment. They move throughout the environment as we call moving laterally. They find data that they want to steal. And then once they've stolen the data at the very end of the campaign, and these can range from days to weeks, sometimes months, but we don't see that as much these days. Finally, at the tail end, the ransomware binary is executed. The binary is executed is just kind of a fancy way of saying the virus takes its hold in your system. As you've probably twigged by now, Ryan uses a lot of acronyms and nerdy industry slang, so I'll just hop in to explain when he does. So basically, what he's saying is, back in the day, ransomware used to mean just a piece of malware that could screw up your computer. But now, it's developed into something much greater and more sophisticated than that. A viable business run by humans who steal your data in a coordinated attack and use it to extort money out of you. News reports say these attacks almost doubled in 2021 compared to the year before, and it's become a multi-billion dollar a year industry. How come? What triggered it was the ease of making it happen. Ryan explains to me that hackers actually used to be more targeted in what they were looking for. They'd hack into your system to target specific information that they actually wanted. Instead of just getting in there and taking whatever they could get, which, and I guess this makes sense, was a lot harder. Their big worry was, oh, we're going to have this really stealth attack and we have to learn all these crazy, you know, detection methods and all these fun things. And then over time, the threat actors, you know, who are the, let's just call them a community, right? The threat actors realized and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can just adapt that model, but on a much lower scale. And instead of worrying about stealing very specific intellectual property, we'll just steal whatever the heck we can get our hands on. You know, HR data, you know, whatever it is, source code for, you know, video games that haven't been released. Or like medical and maternity records from an Irish hospital. So the impact level is large. So how do these hackers get access to your computer in the first place? Ooh, that's a fun one. Okay, um, the way they get in, there's, there's three top ways that they get in. Um, I'm gonna go with the good old classic number one is phishing. Phishing is still number one, and the reason I personally believe it will always You probably be know this, one. but phishing, with a PH, is just a malicious link, normally sent by email, designed to trick you into thinking it's legit. Whereas, actually, by clicking on the link, bam, you've just given the hackers access to your entire system. Sounds like the whole enchilada of my spam folder. Yes. Oh, oh everyone's. Yeah. It, all the stuff that we see day in and day out in, in our spam folder, hopefully in our spam folders, right, being filtered out, a lot of those things are the exact ways these threat actors are getting in for ransomware campaigns. And this is exactly what happened at the Rotunda. On the 8th of March, an email had pinged into an inbox somewhere on the HSE's system. It sat there for a couple of days before it was opened. But when it was, the virus took hold and let the hackers in. A classic phishing success. 
it's kind of creepy. This means they were lurking in the hospital wires for almost nine weeks before they struck, like a parasite. Or it makes me think of highway robbers or Wild West bandits who wait in the bushes and attack the stagecoaches. It's fascinating. These guys live outside the law, but they have a pretty high level of sophistication when it comes to technology. So what kind of criminals are they? Where does Ryan place them in the world? You know, the way I see it, and this is most likely based on my, my location living in the United States and my age and uh, the TV and movies that I watched growing up. There's a lot of organized crime in New York, and a lot of these organized crime mobsters, they hire these goons, they call them sometimes, the, the muscle, to uh, shake down mom-and-pop shops. And they walk into these shops and they say, hey, guess what? You set up shop in our territory. We run these X number of blocks or whatever, you know, and uh, you have to pay us for protection. Uh, the funny thing, of course, is it's protection from them, right? right. <laughs> Essentially, if you don't pay them, they'll, they'll bust your whole store up and they'll be back the next day or the next week. I view ransomware actors just like those folks. They're claiming as though this is our territory and you have to pay us, essentially, in order to maintain access to it and to, to not have it busted up. What are your options if you are hit with a ransomware attack? I mean, should you pay? Should you try and avoid it? Can you haggle? What do you do? So I, that is a huge debate. Many people, the, the primary thing is to think about where's the money going, that's one. But the real big thing to think about for me, the more organizations pay, the more this will never go away. If no one ever paid, this wouldn't be a thing. It would die, it would go away, it would die in the vine. What about a company like JBS that paid $11 million last year in a ransomware attack? I mean, are they contributing towards the increase in these attacks? Yeah, 100%. Right. <laughs> I say 100% a lot, but I have to say it again. We're back in the rotunda, and it's become abundantly clear that this is not a quick fix. It might only have been a few hours since the beginning of the attack, but Cahill knows it'll go on for days, weeks, months even. The HSE has said they're not paying up, so they've got to find a way to get their computers back, and quick. And this is where it gets pretty incredible. Amid all the confusion, the fear, the chaos, they figure out a way. Here's Geraldine. One of the really good things about midwifery is that someone can come in and our midwifery skills don't change because we have a computer. You know, they stay the same, okay? It's how we document our care that was affected. So during the night, the night staff that were involved, they adapted really quickly. They were like, we'll just go back to paper. This is fine. We'll just start writing down everything. They'll just go back to paper. Think about that for a second. An entire hospital going analog. But that's what they did. Within a matter of hours, the entire rotunda has switched from years of complete reliance on computers, emails, and spreadsheets to pens and paper. And with that decision, everything else falls into place. A helpline is set up for incoming patients. A makeshift desk appears in reception to give women wristbands as they arrive. All medical records will now be written on paper. Someone sent out to buy more wristbands, photocopiers, printers, and more paper. I think we found one fax machine that morning, and there was that whole thing of, you kept a fax machine? 
you shouldn't have had a fax machine, but thank God you had a fax machine. It's a mad operation, but Geraldine knows what she's doing. This is old hat. She trained in the days before computers even existed. But very soon, problems started to arise. I've been a midwife in the Rotunda for 17 years, okay? But some of our midwives, they had never worked in the Rotunda prior to a computerized system. So for them, they were like, what do I write? You know, put a computer in front of them and they were flying much better than I would be, you know? So when we were saying to them, just write about your delivery, just write it down. And they were like, well, what do I write? So normally the midwives would have prompts on the screen. Normal heartbeat, check. Any problems with the delivery, check. But now they have to use their brains. One of the midwives came to me and was like, I have the monitor on the baby and the trace, the baby's heartbeat trace, it looks absolutely perfect. And I was like, great. She's like, oh, but I don't know how to describe it. And I was looking at her and it took me a few minutes. I was like, what do you mean you don't know how to describe it? You've just told me it's completely normal. And she was like, oh, but I have to write it down and I have to describe it. So what am I describing? Days go by. They turn into weeks. Geraldine and her colleagues settle into their new system. They work way over time. At this stage, people are exhausted. You know, we've just come out two years of, of COVID, so nobody's had a holiday in the two years. You know, it's just, we're very much just head down and let's keep going. And that whole thing, this will end, this will end, you know. Your phone lit up all day, all day long with just people sending best wishes. How, how can we help? Cahill's working 16 hours a day. And it came on top of 12 previous months of selflessness, of, of COVID response and, and just healthcare staff. Like people were exhausted. And, and now you had like pharmacists in NICU full time around the clock. Every department just between six to eight weeks just worked and worked and worked. 16 hours a day, he's scanning for the virus on each and every one of the Rotunda's 700 computers, finding where it's hiding and getting rid of it. Weed it out bit by bit. And this is where Cahill has an extraordinary stroke of luck. He and his team regularly back up everything on the Rotunda system and had done one just a day or two before this all happened. The hackers may have encrypted the data, but Cahill, amazingly, has a copy. This is all he needs. So he works nonstop, wiping every computer and manually rebuilding it himself. A few days in, something weird happens. Word filters out a decryptor's been released. Now, a decryptor is basically the key you need to disable the virus and get back all your data. A fast, one-stop shop for all your problems. No need to strip and rebuild, which would be great, right? But in this case, it was odd. Under normal circumstances, you would only get the decryptor by paying the ransom that the uh, cyber criminals uh, request from you. And I know in the, the HSE case, the uh, ransom requested, I think, was in the in the region of, of 20 million. But the government, the HSE and the Department of Health came out on the very first day of the cyber attack and indicated that they will not be paying a ransom. 
Geraldine says it was a hot topic in the corridors. Everyone had an opinion on whether to pay the ransom. I felt that if we paid the ransom, you're in a catch-22. If you fee- if you pay the ransom, will it happen again? So you're always worried that once they, the, the people that do this, that they get the big payout, of course they're going to target us again. So I wouldn't like to be the one that had to make that decision, but I also seen that it was having such a big impact on healthcare nationally that we needed to do something quickly. It raised a lot of eyebrows when news of a decryptor uh, started to come out the following week. I suppose everybody was wondering had the HSE actually paid the ransom, but I definitely believe no, no they didn't. So where had this decryptor magically appeared from? I think the cyber criminals involved were probably forced or, or browbeaten into providing the decryptor because this became, well, the, the most high profile cyber attack in the Irish state's history. But it was also a departure from attacking private corporate entities. This attacked the health service of a country, uh, a public health service of, of a country. Some people even think that maybe Russian government had a, a word in, in the ear of, of some of these gangs that, uh, you know, you shouldn't be attacking nation state infrastructure, but it's hard to know. There's no proof necessarily for what Cahill's saying about the Russian government putting a good word in or any government, for that matter. It's just a theory. But keep this in mind, because it'll come up again later. Anyway, they don't use the decryptor, because, as Cahill says... Yes, it's, it's great to be able to decrypt the content, but you can never truly trust the workstation that was encrypted, that there may not be, you know, malicious remnants of malware on it somewhere. So he and Derek, his colleague from IT, keep plotting away at it themselves. 450 computers they rebuild from scratch. Every day was a a challenge and and on more more than one occasion you just felt completely overwhelmed by it. Like we we were joking with each other, you're almost going through the the five stages of of grief. Like these systems, these networks, these switches, these areas, these have been built by people piece by piece as the hospital has grown, as it has expanded. So in in some ways, the IT people felt angry. They felt violated. Somebody has pulled down something that we spend all day, every day, you know, monitoring, tinkering with, massaging, ensuring that, you know, it is resilient and and reliable. And it, it wasn't by accident, it was by design. Like, this was calculated. And bit by bit, it works. After a few days, the lab system's back. A couple of weeks, they can make appointments again. Piece by piece, basic digital functions return. The achievement is huge, and the relief is seismic. Here's Geraldine. In my office, I suddenly had access to my computer, Um, but it was unnerving just to log on when I opened up my computer, even to see the ransom where letter 
coming straight up as soon as I opened it. You have that, oh my God, you know, you're nearly ducking away from the computer and um, just turning it off. But Derek was like, no, it's fine. It's going to be there in the background. Yeah, that was there for uh, quite a while. Ooh, it's just like a sinister shadow. So what came out of all this? An entire hospital of around 1,000 staff revert to pens and paper for up to eight weeks. How did they do it? It is unbelievable. And you know when you're in something, you're on autopilot, you just do what you have to do. Thing is, it's not like we can say to babies, oh, don't deliver tonight because we don't have a computer. Geraldine insists that no mistakes were made when it came to things like blood tests. However, she admits we don't know everything for sure. Will we find a baby whose medical records are are missing? Possibly. We haven't found one yet, but that could happen. And she says that even today, more than a year on, it's somebody's job, still, to be writing up every single piece of paper that was logged during that time and uploading it to the system. Eesh. Data was leaked by the gang. The private medical records of 520 people are out there, somewhere. And by the time this all wound down and the HSE had more or less gotten everything back up and running four months later, they'd shelled out around $100 million, five times the ransom demanded by the hackers. The thing that that gets everybody is that it's against the weakest and most vulnerable people in society. Like, yeah... Sorry, it actually, at least it's a... Like the sheer impact of it and the sheer responsibility of it, like um, they don't see or realise that you have pre-26-week-old, pre-term babies in an NICU, that people don't know what their next drug regimes are. But in some ways, I, I do look back on it in a, in a positive light. <laughs> the absolute solidarity. And we had, you know, donuts, Starbucks, people dropping in, baking cakes. Uh, sorry to ring you. How can we help? Do you need a lift home? It was the, it's, I suppose it's, yes, it's just people People be people. (laughs) So, the biggest question in all of this is, who are they? Who is Conti? Answering that question is far more involved than many people believe. Who did this? And why? A hacker is somebody who likes to tinker. It's somebody who likes to understand how things work. That's next time on .com, The Hacking. .com is a Crowd Network original and is presented by me, Katie Puckrick. It's written and produced by Anna Stauffenberg and is edited by Crawford Blair. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. You can listen to the first two series of .com on this same feed. And for ad-free versions of all episodes, just subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel for one pound a week. 
If you want a different crowd podcast to listen to, check out The Secret History of Flight 149. It follows the stories of the passengers and crew of British Airways Flight 149, which was taken hostage by Saddam Hussein in August 1990. What followed has been dubbed the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years. And now there's a podcast about it, reported by journalist Stephen Davis. Just search for The Secret History of Flight 149 and subscribe now. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.